0: Welcome back, everyone. This is Wild Connection, the podcast. I can't believe I'm already on episode 15. This season is my first season, and I hope you've been enjoying it. We're going to have 24 episodes, and I know I'm having a blast. I'm learning new things, talking to incredible people, and sharing all of the diverse ways we have a connection with other species and with nature and each other. Today is no exception. I discovered Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood when I was doing research for episode nine, Love is a Battlefield, where I spoke with Dr. Zach Emberts about weaponry in mesquite bugs. When I looked up weapons and insects, I came across Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood's work talking about how insects have been used as weapons in human warfare. That just stopped me in my tracks and I knew I had to dig in deeper. After much digging and reading, it was clear that not only did I have to have Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood on the show, but we probably would need two episodes to cover this special topic. This is part one, where we're going to talk about direct attacks using insects to cause disease and even indirect attacks destroying agricultural crops and basically starving your opponent to death. The truth is, we humans have an uneasy and, well, kind of ugly history with some insects. I was inspired to come up with a design uh, specifically for this episode. So don't forget to go to the show notes. Check out the artwork that the amazing Chris Hookah designed just for this episode. So hang on. It's going to be a wild ride. Welcome to Wild Connection the podcast. I'm your host Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Señor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdalen.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Today is a pretty special episode. It's part one of two episodes where I talk to Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood. He's a professor of natural sciences and the humanities at the University of Wyoming. He's written a slew of books and that's why we need two episodes. We're gonna talk about one of them today, which is six-legged soldiers using insects as weapons of war. What's really fascinating is that He's a scientist, but he's also an author and a librettist. If you're not sure what that is, that means he's written the lyrics to an opera that's based on one of his books. And one of the things that emerged when we were talking is that, you know, I was thinking about how having range, having a range of talents, a range of interests is something that's so incredibly important. And in fact, there's a book called Range by David Epstein. And it's a fantastic read. And one of the things that occurred to me as an animal behaviorist is when we look out there in nature, we don't find too many specialists. And that's because they've typically gone extinct. The problem with being a specialist is if something happens where the special skill you have or the special need that you have disappears, you kind of disappear. And in this day and age, we seem to be training everyone to become a specialist in this or that. And As we become more specialized, we become more limited in our ability to problem solve. Personally, I think that people who are more interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary or have a broad range of interests are better problem solvers. They have an ability to integrate different kinds of thinking, which is something that we need when we're facing some of the problems that we have. And so Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood really represents this best example that I've come across in a long time of a scientist who's managed to cross over into the humanities and also cross into creative writing and into the arts. So as you're listening, I hope that you see the value of broadening your perspective, broadening your knowledge and Really trying to reduce the degree to which you specialize in any particular topic. I'm not talking just be a jack of all trades, but definitely to open your mind to different knowledge, different ideas, and different perspectives. Now, you're going to find a lot of information that we're going to talk about is going to be posted in the show notes. You can find those on my website, jenniferverdeland.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. All right. Well, let's get after it and talk to Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood to the show. Thanks for being here.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: You know, this is going to be great because there's so much to talk about that we're actually going to do
1: two episodes. Well, that's it. Yeah, so... (laughs) <laughs> Sounds good. So I, uh, I hope I have two episodes worth of uh, worth of thoughts.
0: for you. Oh, oh, you do. You do. Because, uh, you know, you have we're only going to talk about two of your books and, and you have so many. And they're they're all really wonderful. I haven't read them all yet, but I'm hooked and I'm going to be reading them all. And. You know, before we dive into our first kind of topic book, which is Six-Legged Soldiers Using Insects as Weapons of War, can you share a little bit for, you know, with everyone? I like to have people, you know, learn how how we come to study the things we study, how we get on this path. You know, would you mind sharing a little bit of how you became interested in insects and even in writing?
1: Yeah, it was Soren Kierkegaard, who said that life is lived forward and understood backwards. And so when you reflect on your life, you, you're always able to construct some completely reasonable, even rational path that led you to your present. But while you were on that path, you could not figure out where it was going. So um, so, so, I'll, I'll tell this, yeah, so I'll tell this as if it was a coherent story. Um, <laughs> So as a kid, or beginning as a kid, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and uh, my folks built a house out at the, at the edge of the city, which is now kind of the middle of the city. But I was absolutely fascinated by all of the insects that were coming into our backyard. And I remember having a praying mantis that I would feed flies to. And, and, uh, the black widow spiders, uh, we had a whole neighborhood along the cinder block wall in the backyard of, of black widow spiders. It was like a, a horizontal housing unit for, for spiders. And so I'd catch grasshoppers and feed them to the spiders. So I had this, uh, kind of a, uh, maybe it was a little bit dark, but an enchantment <laughs> with insects. Um, and so uh you know then I grew up and went to college went got a bachelor's in biology, but I always had kind of this interest in insects and decided at the end of my biology degree where I did a bunch of stuff in in labs with vertebrates um working on uh, blood pressure and in rodents of of all things uh, you wouldn't want to have a hypertensive mouse so I decided that insects were 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 calling me. Uh and so I I went to Louisiana State University uh with my with my my recently uh, acquired that's not the I'm with my wife. Um and uh so we went to LSU which is a great place for she she was in social work which is uh desperately needed in Louisiana and I was in entomology which is uh you know it's kind of a haven of entomology everything is alive uh and most of it was crawling in our mobile home so um I I worked there and uh uh, then came back west for did a short postdoc did and then came back west to Wyoming to work at the University of Wyoming um as an insect ecologist to work on rangeland grasshoppers and I loved it because it was like coming home, you know, because mm-hmm. the rangeland is where I spent a lot of my time. As a kid, my brother and I used to make uh, make money in the summer by catching lizards and selling them to pet stores.
0: Really? So,
1: yeah. Did they, I, What did
0: they do with them? Did they sell them as pets or did they feed them to something else?
1: Yeah, I think most I think most <laughs> of them became snake chow. Um, ah,
0: OK. Yes. Yeah. I remember a vivid, um, I I have the video somewhere. I was studying prairie dogs and there was a a garter snake and and there was a lizard. It was eating a lizard, but it was eating it tail first. (laughs) So the entire time I'm like filming, like the lizard's face, its eyes were just like... (laughs) I know nobody can see the expression that I'm making, but it, it, it seemed to know like something terrible was happening. And it was such a slow process that I was, I was so like mesmerized and like a train wreck. I couldn't turn away. And yet I was horrified at the same time. And it was very much alive in the last gulp of, of the snake of the lizard's head just, and then it was gone. And I thought, Oh, 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 that's just got to be terrible. That's well, that's got to so, be a bad way to do to... it. Yeah,
1: but 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 the, the scales of of nature and the scales of justice were balanced when I was in a Mesa Verde <laughs> uh, as a writer in residence, actually there. And I was driving on this back road and I saw this coyote uh, on the road circling. Right. Uh-huh. And what it was, it was circling a really big bull snake. Oh, wow. I mean, this thing must have been at least four feet, maybe five feet long. And of course the bull snake was, you know, doing its best, but you know, it wasn't going to go well. And yeah. so I'm, I'm sitting there watching it. And just mesmerized. Right. And eventually the coyote, you know, he kind of snaps at it and he gets the bull snake by the head. Right. Mm. And then gulps. And then he proceeds over the course of several minutes to swallow this entire bull snake in these series of gulps, like a gigantic spaghetti noodle. Oh
0: my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, yeah. I mean, I sort of think about that. Like whenever I was watching a lizard the other day, eating a a very large ant, Mm. like it it held it in its mouth for a minute and, and, and the little legs were, you know, still Twittering about (laughs) wiggling and, and, and it just, again, it it just, I guess it had to get into the right position to have a meal, like, you know, and, and, and then it just started to, it was anyway okay so you caught lizards and (laughs) delivered them to pet stores
1: stores, (laughs) so so being back out on the rangeland on desert grasslands or in wyoming that you know short grass and express prairie um was great was great and so i did that uh worked on rangeland grasshoppers got into some work internationally with locusts did that for about 15 years but then uh, a whole series of sort of a, well, you know, academic midlife crisis, right? It was, you know, I'd, I'd made a major accomplishment in terms of changing management methods for rangeland grasshoppers across the Western states and it' was feeling good about that. And, but then it was like, well, what do I want to do? What do I really want to do? And, and so, you know, getting into my forties and thinking, you know, having these, the sense that, you know, life is finite. Um, is this what I want to keep doing forever? Um, it's important, but and I came to the conclusion that science was a necessary but not sufficient condition for my happiness, for my fulfillment. So I, I took a sabbatical at Sterling College, Vermont, which is the at that time was the smallest accredited four-year institution in the United States. And I went there to do to write a, a set of essays that had been bouncing around in my head for for quite some time. And uh, I met the editor of Orion when I was there. And he had, I showed him one of the essays and he said, oh, this is, this is great. It's a, a an essay about the, about animals, but it's not about whales or wolves.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, it's amazing, right? Because so much is out there about these popular sort of what we call megafauna, charismatic megafauna. And 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 I can attest to your your books being this wonderful world of of stories with these insects that we don't think about as being meaningful. And you bring them to life in such a magical way. I really um, so I'm not surprised that someone reading an essay of yours, especially an editor, would say, oh, my goodness, this is different.
1: <laughs> yes. So I came back. I told my department head I wanted to do more work. Um, and I had I had co-taught a course on um, agricultural ethics. I'd done, done, done some coursework in ethics when I was in graduate school. And so that department head was really excited. He said, oh, you know, this, we, you know, you'll be our poster child for interdisciplinary work. And I'll just trot you out when the administration says you need to be working across colleges. And I said, well, that sounds like a great deal. So, I kept doing my my uh, nature essays um and did a couple collections and then wrote locust. But then we got a new department head who just bless his heart. he could not figure out why he had a faculty member who wasn't pulling in grants and overhead and and piling up graduate students. yeah um
0: for those so, uh, for those listeners who don't know that's sort of the bread and butter of of the job of of most faculty is to be pulling in money. Supporting grad students and publishing peer-reviewed scientific journal articles.
1: You know, and what's funny about that model is that most of us who got into the sciences, especially my impression, the field sciences, right, um, did so because we wanted to do science. We wanted to be out doing science. But the, the, the structure of the institution doesn't reward me being spending a day out in the field, it rewards me spending a day writing grant proposals and and reports to funding agencies. And so yeah. it, the whole reason to become a natural scientist is sort of undercut by the institutional incentives. Yeah. And so this new department had <laughs> called me into his office and invited me to find another academic home. <laughs> I and like the way you phrased that you were invited. Yeah, why well, was it <laughs> wasn't. It wasn't mean spirited. It was sure. just like I don't think you, yeah, right. And so being able to read between the lines, I figured that I wasn't welcome so much anymore. And I had built these bridges. There was a new creative writing program, an MFA program emerging, as well as um, you know I, I had some good colleagues in philosophy of science and in, in <laughs> and and ethics. And so I negotiated a um, uh, a metamorphosis, and and it was kind of. The, the, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, where I was headed and the dean of the College of Agriculture, you know, deans are they never like to lose anything, even if they don't want it.
0: Yes, it's interesting. Right. I think that's a human condition, though. We don't like to lose something. We like to decide we don't want something anymore.
1: That's right. That's right. Actually, <laughs> I had a Russian graduate student who had this wonderful phrase, "The dog on a haystack. I don't know if you've ever oh, heard this.
0: I have not. It seems familiar, yes. but I don't know the meaning.
1: So to call somebody a dog on a haystack is a reference to a, a, a fable, a Russian fable in which the, a dog, a farm dog, sits on the haystack and growls and barks and snaps at all the animals who come to feed on the hay. But of course, the dog can't eat the hay.
0: Oh, right. Oh, yeah, I got I just got it. Well, I was a little slow there. I was, it took a second and then it penetrated. And yeah. I also like the way that you framed. You went through a metamorphosis, which is probably not accidental. A lot of insects go through metamorphosis. Um, <laughs> and and so now you have found a place that that celebrates and is excited about all of the work that you're doing.
1: That's exactly it. Yeah. So bringing science over into the world of creative writing and over into the world of philosophy. So I've I have a book out on the on the philosophy of ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a textbook should come out later this year with a colleague on philosophy of science. So having you know, you don't want you don't want only scientists in your department of creative writing or philosophy, but one of them turns out to be kind of fun. Well, yeah. So. It, w- it was like starting over. It was like, you know, it, it was, I mean, I had had enough background in both of those areas to have kind of a fighting chance. Um, but especially in creative writing. So I, had, I mean, the last, I don't, I don't know if I ever took a creative writing course. I mean, I took, you know, the standard English courses, but, you know, they were kind of excited to have uh, somebody doing writing who hadn't come through what sometimes they call the hot house of English, right. Done it all the proper ways, right. Of, read the appropriate literature, you know, learn the proper pedagogy for creative writing. And I was, uh, you know, I was, you know, an outsider with entirely different approaches. You know, I thought, you know, I actually, you know, Strunk and White, you know, the the famous Strunk and White. I have like two copies. (laughs) Well, you know, Strunk and White basically, I mean, to paraphrase, they say, you know, if you want to be a writer, read a lot and write a lot. Yes. (laughs) That's like the whole formula.
0: Absolutely. Which is why I plan on reading all of your books. And I (laughs) loved Six-Legged Soldiers. I mean, it's really, you know... To, it covers everything from, you know, direct attacks and, and using insects to cause disease to indirect attacks by destroying agricultural crops and starving your opponent to death. I mean, these are this is a dark, dark kind of I, I mean, there's we're going to get to some of the really dark stuff. But, um you know, what led you to develop the Like what led you down the path as you as as thinking about how insects were used as biological weapons?
1: Yeah. So when I was in when I was a Ph.D. student at LSU, um, a a book came out on biological warfare Um, and it was uh, kind of a popular book. It was very well written and there were enough And it was mostly about microbial warfare. Right. Because when you think of biological warfare, you think about spreading pathogens right sure um, but like the these or uh, yeah. yeah right exactly but there were these mentions right of of insects as you know disease vectors so I got interested in that and I wrote a little paper for the American entomologist kind of a review with a table of cases and whatnot and so that planted a seed that took good grief it took whatever you know 20 years to fully germinate but I kind of kept this file as I'd hear about things or read about things I'd stuff them into the file and pretty soon I had this sort of collection and it was funny when I was you know pitching the book one of the publishers basically said well it's kind of an interesting idea but we don't think that there's enough material here for a book
0: oh they and were so it, wrong
1: so wrong well, <laughs> it turns out that I had to cut out so many so many interesting stories so um, Anyway, so uh, the seed was playing. And, you know, I think that actually goes back. I mean, weirdly, everything goes back to your childhood. When I was a kid. I was fascinated. Apparently, I was a weird kid. I liked feeding things to predators. And and I liked reading about war. I was fascinated by war. Even war comics um, were in Sergeant Rock. Okay, Um, But these other accounts of war and imagining. And I think it's both it weirdly both being in war which i've never been and being an insect which uh, i don't think i've ever been um, were kind of ways of stretching your imagination what would it be like? what is it like to see the world through the senses of an insect what is it like to be in the midst of 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 war it's almost it's a, it's a fascination with the alien the alien other whether it's yeah. a, another Setting as a human or another organism, imagining what it's like to be something you're not.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. I mean, I've always thought I'm an inner girl. I have an inner gorilla, um, that I would, I would, I would work well in a gorilla family, like, you know, unit in a social unit. They're not really related. Yeah, yeah actually. So I would, I would do well with a silverback. I don't know. I've, I've always felt that. Um, I, <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because I, I think, like many people, my relationship with insects has been different. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think they're fascinating. And I will tell you a little later about my epic battle with some paper wasps. No wasps were harmed in the battle, although I'm pretty sure there's like a hit out on me in the community of paper wasps. Um, but, y- you know, that's because a lot of insects. Sting and have venom and and this is also what lends them or has lended them to be useful for many acts of war (laughs) and and so. Before we kind of go into some of those examples and so, and and how this even came up in human thinking, um, what are some of the toxic chemicals or compounds that we find in insect venom, and how is it different from, say, snake venom?
1: Yeah, well, insect venom is a, is quite a cocktail of, of of chemicals that that evoke inflammation, that create pain. I remember uh, being stung uh, just, I don't know, a few years ago by a wasp. Um, uh, it was, I don't know, it hit and ran. So I'm not sure exactly who it was.
0: <laughs> I love that. It hit and run by a
1: wasp. <laughs> hit and run. But one of the things that was fascinating to me was, I mean, the thing injected, I don't know, a, a few microliters, right? If that, right, right. right? Of, a, of a liquid, right? And that pain—the intensity and duration of pain of an organism of my size lasting that long and aching and throbbing that much—I, I, while I was in the pain, I was weirdly marveling at uh, this evolutionary product. Yeah, how that came about, and and as I understand it, it it is a, a mixture of of chemicals that do a lot of different things. And some of them, well, I mean, for instance, in 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 bee venom, um, that venom is probably evolved in order to elicit or 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 cause pain in vertebrates, right? Because sure. they don't they don't sting in order to subdue. No. Um, uh, while some of the other hymenoptera do sting in order to subdue as well as to defend. Yes. Um, or
0: paralyze
1: s- their or paralyze, yes. Yeah. Which sounds Um, just or liquefy. Oh, oh, yes. And the wasps that. um, uh, (laughs) Oh, what what, that um, Nicholas Tinberg, the ones that that paralyze the caterpillar and then drag them underground. And the thing is in a state of suspended animation as it's eaten from the inside out by the next generation of wasp. It's like, wow, that's not a that may be a worse way to go than being swallowed by a lizard.
0: It could be. I think you're probably right. Now, this venom uh, or the the toxins that they produce that, that cause pain or inflammation uh, is what has l- made them so useful for some people. And I love how you describe that humans should be called the throwing or flinging ape. <laughs> um, because essentially in the early sort of uh, iteration, I guess, of using insects I- I- I to to subdue opponents or win a battle. It was catapulting bees and wasps as weapons. So, first of all, do you have any sense of who came up with this idea? <laughs>
1: <And> <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, so but think about this, right? It's I mean, maybe we shouldn't be homo erectus, but homo ejectus, right? Uh, <laughs>
0: So, That's, that would be a really neat change in the name.
1: <laughs> so relatively early on in human history, right? We know stone from stone points, right? That, that we were throwing stuff at each other. Um, and we were throwing it at, at, at prey, right? So we were, you know, we had spears and arrows and, and, and things. Uh, and, and probably early on, we probably just heaved rocks, right? Um, sure. You know, Take, you know, take a six year old kid. Right. And you pretty much have a Neanderthal. No, that's not true. But anyway.
0: (laughs) Well, they're they're making slingshots. Right. Like, that's always fun.
1: Dirt clods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Sure. Snowballs. I mean, we throw snowballs as kids. That's the first thing we do is we like put it all together and throw it.
1: Well, and think about this evolutionarily. um, Humans are, you know, naked apes with very little strength and very little speed and, and we're very tasty. Right. So we've, we've got to do something right. Sure. And we are not going to wrestle most of our prey to the ground. We're going to get our butts kicked. Right. So what do you, what do you do? You kill at a distance. How do you kill at a distance by flinging things?
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I think we might be one of the, I can't imagine any other, I'm trying to think in my predator knowledge of all sort of the taxonomic groups, is there another kill at a distance At the distance that we, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know, but, but it seems like risky business to like catapult a wasp or bee nest. I mean, right. And you just, you describe it. Really spectacularly as a grenade in a hat box, <laughs> and and I mean, if you have ever approached a bee or wasp nest, um, and they're they're really they get really rageful, um, pretty pretty quickly in terms of defending. So, what were some of the ways that people got around this problem?
1: So we think that some of the mechanisms were, for instance, uh, you put out a container. So by this time we're presumably clay making you know, very plot or pot making. Right. Well, anyone who's, you know, if you put a pot out, um, in an area where there are, or say wasps or bees, they're likely to set up a nest, especially if you make that, that pot attractive. So, um, so they probably were using pots that have been colonized, but you also can find nests. And so if you're a basket maker, for example, um, and you've got, a a, a paper wasp nest, right. Mm-hmm. um What you can do is what a, a, a good exterminator does these days. The exterminator is going to use a thick-walled garbage bag, put it beneath that wasp nest, which is hanging from a pedestal, right? And then you just clip it. The nest falls into the bag. You close up the bag, and now you've oh. got you've got a bag of very upset wasps. But you could do the same thing with a basket,
0: oh, right? You drop that
1: drop that nest into the basket, and then. And get, the whole thing is probably at this time in human history is based on siege craft, which plays a role for a very long time in human history. So your enemy is walled up inside a cave or is behind some brambles or whatever. And, you know, you're going to, it's very dangerous to try to get over the barrier, right? That's yeah. the whole idea of the siege, sure. um, but you can heave something over the wall or over the brambles or whatever and drive the end <laughs> inflict horrible pain <laughs> Or drive the enemy out of their out of their uh, uh, their their fortress. Well, yeah, because um,
0: I, I mean, I will say that I was once in confronted in a suit, full suit. I had a colleague that worked on Africanized honeybees in, in South Africa, and I went and I I put on the suit, and and once the you know they use smoke to kind of subdue them, right? Once the smoke stopped, and we were the volume the sheer sound of these bees. And then they were hitting the, the mask, uh, you know, and I was terrified. I was actually more afraid than when I saw a mountain lion a hundred yards away
1: mm-hmm.
0: by the, mm-hmm. the, the, just, I, it was, it was awe inspiring and terrifying at the same time. So I cannot imagine Being holed up in a cave, just chilling, resting, going about, whatever. And all of a sudden, a heaving (laughs) thing comes over and it's a bunch of pissed off bees. Right. That would get me moving immediately.
1: Ouch. Well, and actually, yeah, you you did mention smoking. From what I understand, the idea of using smoke to pacify bees in particular is very, very ancient. Of course, you know trying okay. to find an archaeological record of you know of you know burnt grasses or something is sure. but but it does appear that we've known about that for probably basically for maybe almost as long as we've been able to manage fire we figured out that you can subdue bees with smoke. Well, um, so
0: yeah so i mean it's interesting right because um i'll tell you my battle now with the paper wasps because <laughs> it's related to smoke. So There's an overhang and they started um, and it's like plaster, right? Some kind of roof material that's like plaster. And they started in the corner and I have no problem with this. I'm like, wonderful. Happy to have you. You're spectacular. You have an interesting social system. You know, I've read papers on their social network. It's fascinating. But I guess it wouldn't attach properly to that material. Oh. So then, there's a metal overhang, just part metal on on the screen side of my outside patio, and they started. There was like eight of them, and they were working furiously. and And within 24 hours, I had three little combs, and I felt like they were probably laying another queen. You know, they were dispersing from somewhere else and were starting a new nest. And I thought, oh no, mm-mm, you cannot be here. This will not work. I'm not going to have your nest embedded into my screen. You have to go back where, you know, so I, as a behavioral ecologist, cost benefit analysis, I thought I have to make it very expensive for you to continue to build here. And I thought I'm going to smoke them out. They probably don't like smoke. And I had sage, you know, you burn sage. Oh, sure. So I lit the sage and I waved it around and they definitely didn't like it. Boom. They're gone. 30 seconds later, they're back. We're not abandoning. Like it was pretty naive of me to think like one time I put some smoke in your face and you're gone. No. So for two days, I'm like,
1: well, you know, you know, behavioral economics has the notion of sunk costs.
0: That's right. They had already invested. They got it attached and they were building. So I had to exceed, you know, like, and and overcome because they probably weren't going to do the Concord fallacy, which is that, you know, where you keep <laughs> investing when you're totally going to lose. Most other species are smarter than us on that front. And and so I thought I need another strategy. I got to destroy that little comb thing. So I'm squirting hot water and soap because I didn't want to use anything toxic, but I wanted it to go away because I didn't want to kill them. Meanwhile, while I do that there's a few that are hovering and like, they are looking dead at me. And I, I did think, okay, they are taking a scan of my face, printing posters, uh, and posting them all over for all other paper wasps. If they see me, I'm wanted, I'm, I'm a wanted criminal. And when the big chunk fell off and they started looking for it. They were, I could tell they were really upset. They were looking for it and there was still a little bit hanging. So most of them went back to the original corner and this one just was not going to give up. And I knew I had to get that little bit off the stem and a little piece I had to get it off and it took me three days and all kinds of different materials. Cause I'm on a second floor. I can't get outside and scrape it off wire, hot water. soap. while it kept coming to check on it. And once I dislodged it, that was it. They moved. They tried again in the corner. It wouldn't hold. And I don't know where they went, but I felt like I didn't kill any wasps, but I also, you know encourage them i i made it so expensive for them every single day all day long that they just went elsewhere so that was but i still get a little nervous every time i walk out the door i'm i keep an eye <laughs> out i just feel like they know where i live <laughs> um so that's my story with with wasps and and so i'm curious you know d- I was surprised that using bees and wasps and and ca- catapulting them was well past the middle ages. Like really into like the 1800s, I think, yeah. right? And and the techniques became much more sophisticated. So so what kind of like how did the human sort of evolution of of machinery change from, you know, throwing a clay pot over to what?
1: right well so you so catapults right allow you to heave things long distances and again we're talking kind of about siege so we want to throw these over a wall but there's also a change that that occurs and that is you can also if you're on the inside of the fortress right you can use the insects to drop on those who are trying to climb the walls or who are so it turns out to be um uh, something that you can use in both directions. And so, for instance, in in uh, parts of England in castles, they had things called bee bowls, right, which were these cutouts in the walls of the castle where they would uh, basically uh, produce beehives that from which they could harvest honey. But they were also a, a weaponry so that when the invading forces were trying to mount the walls of the castle, you could pull out your bees and drop them just over the wall onto the invading forces. Um, the f- famous case in in the Middle East where a Roman legion was driven back by uh, the, the locals having collected jars of scorpions and, oh, and dropped know. those on the invading forces. Um, so some things were simple. Uh, distance was, in terms of launching stinging insects, it, it was sort of all about distance. Walls grew higher and higher which means you needed a weapon that could fling things farther and farther. So catapults became very important. As a matter of fact, um, they were also used on ships, right? So oh, wow. um, you would, uh, you know, what you would do is take aboard your ship, a number of beehives, and then that would become an armament during relatively, so, you know, when two ships, um, and we're talking about, um, you know, probably 16, 15, 1600s, and, and even earlier, a lot of it was to draw close enough to the other ship to, 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 to cross over, right, and take them. But that's really dangerous, right? But if you can clear the decks by launching a few beehives onto their deck and then follow up, um, you're in much better shape. So they're used launched insects onto the decks of enemy ships as a way of sort of clearing, <laughs> clearing things off.
0: Well, then what, okay. So part of me is like feeling kind of bad for the bees. I mean, I know I understand a lot about bee social, you know, behavior and, and how, you know, uh, it's really sort of taking advantage of the, the, the loyalty and defense mechanisms that bees have evolved to protect, you know, everything that's in the hive. Um, And so But it seems like, okay. if I toss the bee and then I come following, the bees are still there, are they not? Or what has happened to the bees? (laughs) Well, I suppose,
1: and we don't have a whole lot of accounts of this, you just have to wait a while. Ah, I mean, because the bees aren't going to hang around very long. They're going to be really mad when their nest hits the deck. Sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But there, there's nothing to keep them there. So uh, so you're you're basically inflicting, you know, well, it's sort of like an artillery barrage before you storm the beach.
0: OK, now there's another way that that insects have been used. And I, I have I, I I won't say that I've had nightmares yet, but <laughs> um, you discuss a, a lot of insects being used as agents of torture Yes. Uh, from flies and ants, I'm sure scorpions, to bedbugs and assassin bugs. And, and so for the history buffs out there, I'm telling you, this book is incredible. Six-legged soldiers. You have to read it. Tell me a little bit about the prison in, in, prison in uh, Bukhara. Uh,
1: Bukhara, yeah. Bukhara
0: and the emir who maintained this, basically this entom- entomological house of horrors. Uh, That had assassin bugs. Okay, what is an assassin bug and why were they so
1: useful for torture? So an assassin bug is actually a bug. Um, It has this very stout um, mouth parts, right? That looks like a little beak and they stab this into their prey and basically they inject digestive enzymes, liquefy the innards of their prey and then suck them up like in a straw. Mm. Um yeah. <laughs> this uh, is the nightmarish part. <laughs> yeah, it works works great, and a lot of those enzymes are proteolytic because you want to break down, you know, co- you know, basically convert the caterpillar right into a bag of of juice. Um, so <laughs> this, like bag kids of with juice, their, yes, kids <laughs> like a with, Slurpee. Well, or kids with their those juice bags, right? Oh
0: yes. Oh yeah, the right? Capri and, Sun, right? Capri
1: Sun, a Capri Sun and a straw is oh, really just. A, a human version of an assassin bug. Yeah. Okay. okay. So this yeah, go ahead. This, so this Amir, right? So in in the city of Bukharan, which was kind of this um this really strategically important location. Um and and this is, you know, he had developed this device, this devor- this thing called the bug pit. Mm. Um, for so he was he was not, he was not a nice man. He was infamous for the horrible things that he would do to his enemies. And so this is during the period of history called the great game where the Russians and the British were sort of vying for control over, um, over, you know, these portions of, of, in this case, Uzbekistan. So the stands are at, um, you know, are at stake here. And so we learn about the bug pit because the British decide that they're going to (laughs) naively, right They're, They're going to go, you know, and and talk some sense into the emir. Oh. And oh, of course. Yes. (laughs) He he is not impressed. And he gets a message that they are actually going to betray him, that they're spies. And so he does his normal thing and says, Well, okay, I'm not sure what to do with them. So in the meantime, I'll put them in the bug pit. And this is a several meter deep stone-lined. Uh well, you think of it as a well, and he would lower his his um enemies into this and basically pull up the rope, and there you are at the bottom of this dark, wet, dank pit um and that would be kind of bad, but not bad enough, so he seeded the bug pit with um probably with some ticks and other things, but his his coup de gras was assassin bugs now assassin bugs except for uh, uh, one very particular species in South America, don't feed on people, right? But most animals, including assassin bugs, when you get hungry enough, (laughs) including humans, you'll be amazed at what you'll eat, right? Yes,
0: oh, absolutely.
1: Um, And so food, your, your threshold for what constitutes food lowers as a function of hunger. And so these assassin bugs, right, don't have, they're not being fed. Well, actually, between prisoners, he might have fed them. Um, it's variously reported meats and whatnot. So we drop a prisoner in there, and the assassin bugs, who are very hungry, would begin to crawl in the dark on these people. And think about it, you know, an insect, kind of the length of the last digit of your little finger or so. They're not really big, but they would then pierce the flesh of the prisoners and inject this proteolytic enzyme which would essentially dissolve. It, it was reported as feeling like a burning knife, right? or, or think of uh, think about somebody heating an ice pick in a fire and then mm-hmm. sticking it into you. So it was excruciating. and it was sort of like being dissolved because apparently you would be you would be bitten by dozens or hundreds of these and they would create these open, festering sores. Because the, your flesh was literally being uh, enzymatically dissolved um, as the insects would then slurp you up right. and um, and so that was not a very pleasant uh, a very pleasant experience. Now, so, let
0: me, yeah. yeah let me tell you like if, if anybody puts me with bugs or scorpions, assassin bugs, I will confess immediately like <laughs> whatever. I did it. I don't know what it is, but I did it. I'm sure of it just please
1: get me out of <laughs> here. <it> stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I cannot even, I cannot even imagine. Um, and it wasn't to confess. I right? was just sort of to hold him there and, you know, uh, maybe he enjoyed, it sounds like he was a bit of
1: a sociopath.
0: Oh, a he was, he,
1: he was absolutely a sadist. Um, yeah. his people knew it. And I think my sense was, um, uh, His power came from generating fear via reputation. So he didn't really need each prisoner, you know, perhaps to confess. He just wanted it known that if you cross the emir, and he would haul these people up. I mean, the two Englishmen that he he took as prisoners, he hauled them up, Mm -hmm. right? So people could see the consequences of being, you know, digested bit by bit. And they actually, you know, lived above ground for a while. Um, as he was negotiating with the British and whatnot, at the, in the end, he mercy, <laughs> he considers himself merciful because it cuts off their heads. Um,
0: oh. well, I mean, uh, comparatively <laughs> it might be, I, I mean, you know, death by a thousand, you know, assassin bugs versus, you know, just unless he used a blunt knife. Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So, so this was a, a very, uh, eye opening and eye shutting in a way, uh, (laughs) uh, read, uh, that part. And then, you know, another area that was really interesting, uh, was using, uh, insects as, uh, to cause disease. I was, you know, and, and there was a couple of parts that were very, um, striking to me, one was in the civil war where you talk about mosquitoes causing malaria. And I think a lot of people believe malaria only happens on the African continent. uh, But that isn't true. I mean, it's found in the Mediterranean. It's actually found in other places, but I had no idea that it was a factor in the civil war. Can you, can you tell me um, a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, maybe the. in in warfare uh, uh, insects were especially early on were used sort of as passive allies and and so this goes goes back actually centuries but the idea was to pin your enemy down in swampy areas and of course malaria right the name the disease comes from mal air bad air that's the latin root so they actually thought right they didn't know that it was mosquitoes transmitting a path- pathogen they just knew that if you could pin your enemy into a swampy area and hold them there they would get sick right and then you wouldn't have to risk your troops uh fighting them you know with 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 normal weaponry and so maybe the most important case in the u.s civil war was this joseph e johnston right he was defending richmond um and the union troops were were coming up the chickahominy river and johnston Pretty much knew he was he was going to be outgunned and outnumbered, so he knew that in a direct conflict he had he, he might not be able to defend Richmond, but he knew that he could at least hold them in place, and so he pinned down the Union troops in the swamps outside of Richmond, and he was scolded by his superiors for not engaging in you know active you know uh, you know violent warfare, but Johnston he was smart he knew. that that he was winning a war of of pathogenic attrition. Um, And he probably, he wouldn't have known that it was the mosquitoes that were there, but he knew that swampy areas were bad news. And in fact, um, he held the Union troops there. The Union troops had to keep supplying people and removing the dead and dying as malaria um, took their numbers and weakened them to such an extent that eventually they broke off um, they broke off the attack in Johnston, in a sense saves Richmond, by virtue of having allied unwittingly with the mosquitoes. And this, this was kind of this, this long, I mean, it goes back to, you know, back in 300 BC, there was a, 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 an emperor, Clearchus, who did the same thing in a way, pinned his enemy um, into a swampy area and let disease take its toll. Um, so there was an understanding that that these these uh, wet, sloppy areas had bad air. But in fact, what they had was was bad insects.
0: Yeah. So and it's interesting because at some point it did become crystal clear that insects caused insects cause disease. and. Fleas have played a major role as an agent of disease in war. Why? Why were fleas a real favorite?
1: Uh, Well, I I think they're a real favorite. So in some ways, you would think they're not they're not a great weapon because they don't have wings. Right. So they're not going to disperse. But the upside of a flea is that you can then drop it where you want it. And and it won't disperse, say, into your forces, at least you know very quickly fleas also are really good at finding their hosts they're they're very aggressive the other thing is fleas are really tough i mean if you've ever caught a flea right oh, and, yeah. and 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 just try to squeeze it it's i mean maybe get your fingernail in there and you can right. but Basically, they are tough little bastards.
0: <laughs> you got to get them just right. And usually dupe. between two fingernails to yeah. really, you know, break Pop through em. that exoskeleton. And yeah.
1: So they're great agents for dispersing, especially aerial dispersal. Right. Because oh, they're tough. They just
0: drop, too. They just <gasps>
1: drop. Right. And then they're really good. And of course, you know, without going into all the physics, you can drop an insect from You know the top of a building, and because of various physical forces, it basically is falling at a rate as if it were were were, were gently descending. So you can't kill an insect by dropping it. That that's the bottom line, right? Okay. Um, Because I feel like a lot of
0: people are going to drop insects now and see if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't harm any insects to test that hypothesis out. Okay.
1: So insects, they're they're tough. You can drop them. They fall slowly um, and and they're good at finding their hosts. And of course, fleas carry various diseases, most notoriously um, bubonic plague. Yeah. Right. And the cool thing about bubonic plague is you can get an, an outbreak started by. You know, with infected fleas. and Of course, the fleas will then move the plague into rats. So you get a reservoir there. And then if you're lucky, maybe you'll get a pneumonic form of the plague and people will just spread it by coughing on each other or sneezing.
0: Which is what happened, right? In the when we what we think of as the Black Death, Um, right? And a lot of people might be surprised to know that bubonic plague is very still much with us. Uh, We had, uh, I think, a recent outbreak in Madagascar a couple years ago, and of course, I study prairie dogs, and they are notorious for having really not much defense against. Uh, a breakout of bubonic plague, and I'm curious if fleas have had any like major influence in in a winner or loser of a particular battle.
1: Well, yeah, they they certainly played a big role in World War II. In um, World War II, the Japanese biological warfare unit called Unit 731, led by uh, a fellow named General Shiro Ishii. Developed what must be the darkest, most effective biological warfare program in human history, and so he basically was weaponizing uh, plague-infected fleas. They began by dropping. They began by making it very difficult on themselves um, by uh, by trying to drop um, uh, <laughs> parachuting in, in in essence plague-infested rats, right, um, and then. They discovered, wait a minute, we can just take the rat out of the picture. Um, We can just and then they would put the fleas in in these ceramic bomb casings and they would detonate those over over a city um, and it would rain fleas. And even that was was, you know, a little bit too tedious. So then they just took to simply spraying fleas directly out of airplanes over cities. Really? Um, I, out I of the have plan. never
0: heard of this. This is and this is what was so wonderful about your your book was I think we don't know a lot of these kind of details about some of these things. So I had no idea in World War II that that this was the plan and, and that this was actually carried
1: out. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, one of their plague attacks, they were basically all the plague attacks were were um, aimed at China. Um, and they generated a number of plague outbreaks. One of them killed a hundred thousand Chinese. So it was very effective. Uh, it was it worked brilliantly. They they had massive capacity uh, for for the production of of fleas. They could produce um, billions of fleas. Uh, it got you know it, it, they they were growing them on. A, Initially, they were growing them on prisoners, um, but then they they switched to feeding them on rats. And then it appears that they may have had some success on feeding them through um, basically a, a thin membrane. Right. So you didn't even have to have a live. They needed blood. And so they were I mean, it was horrible. They were exsanguinating um, probably hundreds or thousands of Chinese prisoners, collecting that human blood and then feeding that blood to the fleas and then generating. Uh, these plague-infected fleas, loading them up on, on planes. Um, so yeah, it was it was very effective. It, I mean, it was. I mean, the other weapon they used was cholera-coated flies, mm. um, and that, in in some ways, was was even deadlier. Because again, the idea wasn't necessarily that every flea is going to kill. You want to seed or start the outbreak, and that's what they did with. With these, um, what they call the Uji bombs, they they were a binary bomb with a slurry of cholera and a compartment of flies. The bomb would would break open, spatter cholera on the flies, and then they would carry it into the cities. Um, and they had two major attacks on China. They killed more Chinese with cholera outbreaks started by a plague a, a coded, or plague. I'm sorry, cholera coated flies. They killed more Chinese in two attacks. Then we killed the Japanese in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Biological warfare, antibiological warfare was killed more people than nuclear bombs in World War Two, which isn't doesn't justify.
0: No, the, but, but the
1: atomic bomb. But we don't we don't hear that story.
0: We don't hear that story. And it's interesting because you sort of, you know, finish out the book with with talking about you know where things stand today and and where we might still be vulnerable to entomological warfare so are are insects still considered a potent military
1: tool that's a great question you know i you know we 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 have right now in the world what military people sometimes call asymmetrical warfare right so we've got smart bombs and 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 drones and all this stuff right which gives us us being sort of the west this this huge sort of, uh, advantage technologically, um, but biological and in particular entomological warfare are conceivable ways of sort of leveling the battlefield, um, especially if your target is a civilian population. Um, you know, we are fighting, you know, we fight fewer and fewer sort of battlefield sorts of encounters, but more and more wage economic warfare, psychological warfare, cultural warfare, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that we are uh, certainly prone uh, in many ways to an entomological attack. It, I mean, the National Academy of Sciences, you know, have had some studies that um, I mean, they were they were somewhat um, uh, secret, although I was able to get the documents because they technically weren't classified. Um, but they looked at things like uh, just just using um, screw worm fly right, which we've eradicated, Um, it would be incredibly easy to restart screwworm fly in the livestock industry of the United States and cause tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. Same thing with the Mediterranean fruit fly. So, you know, we think of of pathogens, right? And that that would be kind of a bummer, um, especially with genetic engineering. Maybe you could genetically engineer a native mosquito, for instance, to transmit the AIDS virus. But in terms of economic warfare, introducing things like the medfly or reintroducing the screwworm fly, those are potentially big wins for very low cost. It doesn't generate sort of the fear and terror, but um, well, unless, you know, you're a farmer in California. Sure. um, I mean, from a livestock food
0: security kind of situation, you know, that that is a, a way to target. Indirectly. And, and and that's part of what the book is about. So which actually will lead us now to your second book in terms of thinking about agriculture. But um, that's going to be for our second episode. So I have to just tell you, you know, you're a fantastic writer and storyteller. And I easily can plan to be reading all of your books, as should everyone else. So this episode, we talked about six-legged soldiers using insects as weapons of war, and it is truly enthralling. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. And uh, I hope everybody reads the book and has uh, appropriate nightmares.
0: (laughs) Oh, it is. You could easily. And we're going to continue this conversation uh, next week in our second episode, where we will be talking about another book that you have called Locust, the devastating rise and mysterious disappearance of the insect that shaped the American frontier. And we're also going to talk about not just the big impact that locusts have had on us humans and continue to have, given that this year, Kenya has one of the worst locust outbreaks in in over 70 years. But then listeners are also in for a real treat because you are also a librettist and have an opera that was developed um, based on this particular book. So everyone, be sure to tune in next week as my conversation continues with Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood. All right, everybody, that's our show. And don't forget, tune in next week for the second part of my interview with Dr. Jeffrey Lockwood, where we talk about his second book, Locus, and also how that book has been interpreted now into an opera. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it so others can find it too. Don't forget to check out the show notes and also the special artwork that was created for this episode at jennifervertolin.com. Or you can also go to Wild Connection, the podcast, where I'm hosted by Podbean.